My name is Ellie Cook and this is One Coffee House, a podcast about following Jesus while studying at uni in London. Ollie, tell us a bit about what we were thinking when we planned this series of podcasts. Well, what it comes down to is that we believe Jesus is good news for students, whether you're studying Girdle's Incompleteness Theorems, Gucci's Marketing Strategy, How to Deliver a Baby, Jesus is good news for you and Jesus is good news for what you're studying. Um, So over the course of these podcasts, we want to dive into the detail of that. What does it look like to follow Jesus while studying maths or nursing or fine art? Uh, But here at the outset, we wanted to lay some basic principles by chatting to someone who's been involved in academia for quite a while and asking them what it looks like to follow Jesus while studying at uni. So today we're joined by the Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry at Bristol University, Glyn Harrison, who's also a member of our church family. And Glyn is going to be chatting with us about what it means to follow Jesus while studying at uni. So Glyn, what I want to ask you right at the start is, do you feel like a professor? Like, did five-year-old Glyn tell people he was going to be a professor? (laughs) Uh, Well, Ellie and Ollie uh, and everybody... um, It's uh, great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on board today. Um, And um, I I certainly didn't have any aspirations to be a professor. A professor, I was from a very working class background, um, Ellie, and uh, going to university was something off the radar for all of our family. Uh, So going to university, that was my aim, that I'd be the first to, to get there. Um, there's a bit of a story behind that, but I, but maybe we we won't go there just now. It might take us down off piece a bit too far. But <laughs> I certainly always wanted to be a doctor from my earliest years. I think I had a fascination with medicine, uh, and obviously my parents were thrilled and saw uh, a picture of me as being a brain surgeon. Uh, and then I ended up as a psychiatrist, which was very disappointing. To them, and they had to get used to, to having a, a shrink for a son. But um, once they, they got over that. Um, but even in my early part of my career, I didn't really think of myself as uh, being a professor or indeed going into academics initially. Um, but I, I did do as an NHS consultant. Uh, I'd already done quite a bit of research in, in sort of in my own time or in the small amount of time you get. And and one of the things uh, I did hit the jackpot. It 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 was a really interesting finding that that actually even got uh, Horizon, the television program, the science program. Horizon came to the a whole show up about this piece of research. So that really got me going and uh, involved. And and eventually I went for the chair in Nottingham University and got that a new chair. And then I did a sideways move from Nottingham back to Bristol, where I'd started out as a psychiatrist and took the chair there. Emeritus sounds rather grand, doesn't it? It it actually just... It actually just means retired. So <laughs> <laughs> I retired about, well, about eight, ten years ago now, actually. Um, although I, and I've retired from practice, my clinical practice as well. Uh, but I like to keep involved, particularly thinking about the interface between faith and psychiatry, the brain, psychology, that kind of thing. Nice, nice. Um, and just when you're kind of not... Um, doing the kind of academic things what what else do you do like what's your kind of what your hobbies you know 
Ooh, hobbies. <laughs> what a lovely old-fashioned word. No. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I, um, I, I, I love, um, I love theatre and music uh, and film. I, I suppose a lot of people say that, but but I do. I have to com- make a little confession. I do actually love ballet. Oh, you know, I try to keep it a secret, that. but sometimes it spills out, and I do love ballet. And being here in London is a great yeah. resource for that. Um, I, I I do love fly fishing, you know, going hunting for fish, coming back exhausted. And I only went last Thursday, Ellie, and it was the most beautiful day. And I caught four lovely, big, shiny red um, um, rainbow trout, uh, the biggest of which was seven pound. How about that? So they're all in the fridge now waiting nice. to be eaten. Yes. Lovely. Very good. We're going to have to get you back to do following Jesus while watching ballet or something like that. I, <laughs> I, would, I would love that. <laughs> well, I'm very happy. There is a whole theology of that as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's um, talk a little bit then about your experience as an undergrad. Um, if, you, if somebody had asked undergrad Glenn what difference faith made um, to his studies, um, what would you have said? Um, I, 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 to be perfectly honest, I think I'd have said, uh, I didn't have a very good theology, uh, particularly in the early part. I, I think it was almost toward graduation that I began to, when I was thinking about working as a doctor, what, what does, where, where does work sit in my view of myself as, as a follower of Jesus? So earlier on, I, to be perfectly honest, I'd see, I'd see faith as some, as a, a wonderful distraction from work. I, I loved uh, going down to the Christian Union. I got really involved in that on the committee and then president of our CU. And I loved all of those things, Bible studies and meeting folk, coffee and one-to-ones. And yeah, so um, I have to say the two didn't really get integrated very well in my small head at the times, but, but I have thought about it more since then yeah yeah well then you've kind of talked a little bit about your kind of journey from I suppose like being a doctor to being a kind of academic and as you think about that then and and kind of this this sort of the space of and the place of faith in that what point I guess did you start to see your faith more integrated into your kind of academic life um and what what part has it played in that Thanks, Ellie. I, I think it, it was as I got a, a, a um, as I fell under good Bible teaching. You know, um, th- there's some wonderful preaching around, but it can often kind of be confined to or focused just on the question. It's a big question, a really important one, which is what is salvation? How do we how do we get right with God? And I think that's obviously that is the gateway into everything else. Uh, and that is the gospel. And that is the message we take out to the world. What is our salvation? How can we get right with God? What does it mean that Jesus died on the cross? And that is a big part. But I think I, I, I fell under the spell, if that's the word, of, of some wonderful Bible preaching, which actually went on to the next step. Not simply what is my salvation, but what is my salvation for what 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 is it to do in my life and the life of other people and in this thing we call the kingdom of god and my place in that so it was once i fell under that kind of much more holistic 
kind of working out of God's word that I began to see that that work is a big part of that question. What is my salvation for um, in relation to how I approach my work? And that, that's why we're having this conversation now, I guess, you know, but th- that, that was how it happened, Ellie. Yeah. Thanks. And just running with that a bit more, Glenn, because I'm really interested to dig into that. Um, you've given an entire career to studying psychiatry, and I guess someone could ask, um, why would a Christian give so much of their time to studying something that isn't the gospel? Like, why would you give so much of your time and energy, because it would have been hard work, I imagine, um, studying something so carefully that isn't, like, the, the, the word of God, that isn't the scriptures? Um, how would you answer that? Well, I, I think you, you, we need to see work and study as part of work, as kingdom work, actually. Uh, one of the great gifts of of the Reformation was before the Reformation, the church had fallen into this secular sacred divide that uh, there's the sacred bit, which is uh, run by priests. And that's where the real action happens. And then there's the secular, or even they use the word profane, you know, and this is somehow beyond the work of the gospel. Um, It, 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 it was never really Catholic preaching, actually, proper early Catholic preaching, but that had become rampant in the church, that there was the upper class and then there was the, the lower class, you know. And what Luther tore down was this idea of the secular set, and he said it's all God's work, whereas we preach our, what salvation is, but also it's God's work as we live out what salvation's for. And of course, in um, I think it's Colossians three twenty three, Paul says, "Whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as to the Lord." And I, I think that began to sink in and change the way uh, I think. So now, I, you know, for me, rule number one here is see your studies as kingdom work. Whatever you do, do it as to the Lord, and do it in a way that pleases Him. And of course, what the gospel is for is to put the world back together and the world that that God wants to see put back together was at the beginning of creation a world of work God said let us make humans in our image male and female he created them and then here's the next bit Genesis 1 26 so that they may rule ruling is doing the work of God. And so what we want to do is to share in God's work of ordering his world, making it a more beautiful, even more beautiful place, building on the building blocks of beauty that he gives us, um, and to bring into his world, um, to bring out the truth, to bring more beauty and to show and live out the goodness of God. So it's goodness, beauty, truth. And our work is, is an important part of that, I think. I love talking uh, to you and others like you, Glenn, about this sort of area, because it's just so much more of an exciting vision of, um, of the kingdom, isn't it? And of, of who Jesus is. It's so much bigger and more beautiful as we think yeah. about the Lord Jesus. Um, and I, I suppose as we do that, and as, as our students and the students who are listening in are doing that, there's going to be like massive challenges in the way they do that. That's going to be hard work. Um, what do you think some of those challenges are? Because it's not plain sailing, is it, being a Christian and taking your studies seriously? No, it, it, it's really tough going. Um, uh, I, I, I think 
the, the first thing I'd, I want to say is, is see uh, your studies as, the first thing I said was kingdom work. The second thing would be as identity work. In other words, it's, it's part of the work of being who you are in Christ. Uh, now, what the world out there will try to say to us is, um, no, no, work is so important. You, you can build your identity on that. And something, it hooks something inside us as well, that if only I can achieve this, or if only I can get to that place on the ladder, um, then I am a somebody, you know? And uh, the world gives us all kinds of mixed messages about this, because on the one hand, it says, no, 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 be yourself. Just look inside of yourself. And, and whatever you find there, just be authentic. Uh, and so it says, be content with yourself. But then, of course, the whole world of consumerism and the drivenness at work says, um, no, no, don't be yourself. You need to be like this. And, and the whole advertising world is there to breed discontent. You know, don't, don't look like you look. Look like she looks or he looks, you, you know. And so they, they, they images, possibilities dance in front of our eyes every day of how we should be and how we can be if we really want to be a somebody. And that is a big struggle for everybody. And what the gospel does is it calls us out of that to say, no, no, your identity is as a child of the living God. He names you. He says who you are. And you don't have to earn a thing. But then... Your work is an expression of who you are as a child of God, learning once again to put his world back together, to live as he calls us to live and to create goodness, beauty, truth uh, in his world. So that, that's the other big thing is see your work as an expression, an outworking of who you are, not the basis of it, I guess. You may want to come back there, Ollie, and take, you know, just... I, I guess just thinking about that idea of it being identity work and being an expression of who we are. Um, one of the things I would sometimes feel when I was studying, and I don't know if this, this is, has been sort of something you've battled with as, as an academic in a university, is that does, does, does being a Christian, Christian inhibit what you do is, in your studies? I don't know if that makes sense, but sometimes I would feel like I was going in and the rest of my friends could sort of study everything freely, whereas I had sort of restrict, I was a bit more restricted because I was a Christian in this area. Um, would you say, that, I mean, talking to you just then, it doesn't sound to, to me like Christianity should inhibit someone in their studies. Is that something you work through? Can you give us an example? Yeah, I guess so. In, in lectures, um, if, if I'm in a science lecture and, um, and the, the lecturer is talking about some particular theory and I'm thinking, well... I can't just say, maybe this is true, maybe it isn't. I've now got this whole other set of questions, which are, does this fit with what I already believe? Whereas uh, my friend, um, Lauren, next to me, she doesn't need to think about that. She can just say, well, is it true or not? And so I guess as, as Christians, you're, you're coming with this whole other set of questions, it sometimes feels like. Um, and I suppose particularly, it would sometimes feel like, and, and maybe this isn't your experience, but I wonder whether our friends, our colleagues, our fellow students would sort of think, well, I'm, I'm completely free to explore this world and to work out what's true. Uh, whereas poor Ollie, he already has a whole pile of dogmas. Um, 
And if what we learn in this lecture conflicts with that, he's going to have to work out some crazy way of, of still being a serious uh, mathematician or scientist or whatever it might be, while, without that sort of jeopardising his faith. Um, do you, do you yes. think that's true? or? Yeah, well... Um... Well, I don't buy the premise. I, I don't buy the premise that somehow we come in uh, burdened with all our presuppositions. That is our you know, our, our grounded beliefs about the way the world operates, and nobody else does that. Everybody approaches the world through a lens. You know, we, we all have our biases in the way we look at the world. And, um, you know, the, the whole debate about uh, unconscious bias training at the moment is really recognizing that we all look at the world in different ways. And in fact, there's a wonderful there's a whole set of psychological experiments, a lot of psychological data now um, about around what are called cognitive biases. Um, you, you know, um, the, 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 the most commonly talked about one, as you'll know, is confirmation bias, that we all much prefer information that we already agree with. To information we don't already agree with. And that's why if you look on, on the people you follow on Twitter, you'll see, or, or whatever, the more, um, uh, I mean, old Twitter's an old old guy's thing, isn't it? Yeah, but whatever, Instagram, whatever you're on, the kind of opinions you follow tend to be people whose opinions you like, and we screen out those we don't like, which is probably part of why the world's becoming such a dangerous place because we're all getting into silos in which we are simply uh, confirming to one another our prejudices and our biases so i don't buy the premise that it's just christians who look at the world from a certain standpoint uh, we all have standpoints but equally i don't buy the idea that christians have got anything to fear about truth you know, if it's true, it's God's truth, because all truth is God's truth. And so if you go into an, a line of inquiry, if you look hard at God's world and you say, well, I don't, I don't know how to reconcile that with my Christian worldview, my Christian way of looking at things, then that is a challenge. That That is an opportunity to do some good intellectual work. And um, it may well be that you can resolve that. It may be your own Christian view needs to be expanded or broadened a bit and challenged. You know, nothing wrong with, with that as, as long as we keep ourselves grounded, going back to the Bible and scratching our heads saying, oh, what does it really say? And how do I reconcile it with that? Oh, it may be, as often the case, that, that what is presented to you out there as truth is actually just today's version of it. And again, you probably know there's a, a big crisis in the social sciences called the replicability crisis at the moment, that so many psychological social science experiments, we can't get them to repeat themselves. In other words, when you repeat them a year or two later, people don't get the same finding. And there's a lot of, so there's a lot of scratching of heads going on, much less certainty out there. So don't be thrown when people do the trick of, well, as all right thinking people know, you know, and present something to you as all right thinking people think this. 
be a genuine, you know, be genuinely curious and have a confidence that if it's true, it's God's truth, and there will be a way of, of, of working this out. Now, sometimes you need to just be humble and say, at the moment, I don't know how this fits, you know. But again, don't buy the premise that you're the only person as a Christian who can't fit everything together. There are atheists who can't fit everything together. For example, that the universe came out of nothing in a, in a moment, you know, that everything came out of nothing. Now, you ask an atheist how, how you fit that together, really, and you very quickly get to the point where you have uh, transcended reason. You're, you're at the limits of what reason can can where it can get you doesn't mean it won't get you there eventually you know but at the moment be humble and say yeah i don't understand that but i think there's a lot of things you don't understand as well so let's not pretend that we're there isn't some kind of level playing field here and that's such a wonderful attitude to take into academic studies isn't it those are two of the words you use there that humility but also that curiosity that actually when you approach um approach a particular area of studies with humility, thinking I've got stuff to learn here, but I want to and I'm curious about it. Um, It's so exciting, isn't it, seeing students um, and seeing how the the faith of the students is driving people to take the world seriously and to to consider things carefully with that humility that I might not know everything in the world at the moment, but I want to find out what's going on. Um, Actually, rather than inhibiting it, it does drive us forward. Yes, yes, and and just yes. and, and again, again to, to to see our curiosity, curiosity and and, and the, the rewards that curiosity can bring as something that pleases God as well. So you know, you press the button on the on on, on the on the in, in the analysis you're doing, let's say on SPSS, something like that, and you know, the, and and out comes the, the answer with a p value. And it's wonderful, it's amazing, you know, you've got a finding. And you need to understand that God's heart skips a beat with you at that point. He loves to see you being curious and understanding and discovering more about his world um, and making more of it even as, as, as we dig into it. So. And if that's, so we've got that big vision of, I guess, um, a reformed approach to the world that actually um, it's all God's truth, that there's no sacred, sacred secular divide, that actually uh, this expansive understanding of ki- kingdom building work and of um, identity work. Just touching briefly on, I guess, the more recent history of um, evangelicals in the academy. Um, I think it would probably be fair to say that evangelicals tend to have a bad rep when it comes to intellectual studies. Um, why do you think that is? Do you think that's fair? Uh, do you think that's inevitable? Do you know, I'm, I'm not sure how true that is in, in the sense that I, 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 I know lots and lots and lots of Christians in academia um, uh, and and even more so in the states, of course, uh, you, you know where there are lots of serious uh, academics. But um, I mean, here in the UK, there are many, many academics, uh, Christians in in academia, and not not all are writing about that because they're busy doing their academic work. <laughs> but but you know, um, I think one of the disappointments, though, Ollie, is the, the I think there is a relative lack of Christians in the arts. 
um, and humanities. Uh, and, and I think that is an issue. Where are the Christians in sociology? Um, there are quite a lot in psychology, but, but sociology, and we need more in English uh, and, and literature and so on. Um, I'd love to see more, more Christians there. And I think part of that must be because of this inherited suspicion, you know, that somehow being an engineer is, is a kind of, you can just get your head around that as a godly pursuit, but being a ballet dancer, you know, be, be, uh, living the, the, the artistry of God. God is an artist, remember. He, he is the consumer artist. Uh, and, um, and yet somehow there's a bit of a hangover, I think, that being an engineer, building bridges, that's great, you know, uh, but somehow being a dancer or being an artist or even being a sociologist and thinking about, from a certain point of view, how human relationships operate on a big scale and what laws seem to operate there, that somehow that, that's not godly. So I, I think there's some work to be done there, Ollie, certainly. Uh, and, and it is all about uh, banging on about this important theology that all work uh, all the world is, it's God's world and he loves it and he wants to see us make more of it. You know? Wonderful. Um, well, as we kind of come closer to the end, we would love um, your kind of advice to um, the students who are listening. And particularly as somebody who's taught undergraduates and postgrads, um, what, would your, um, what would you love them to know as someone who's been an educator? Yeah, um, <laughs> they used to call me the smiling death, the students. Did you know that? <laughs> Is that a nickname that stuck? <laughs> Is that... <laughs> no, Are we trying to revive that now, Ben? That was going on. <laughs> I hope what they meant by that was, was that I, I love students and, and I love working with students. Um, but in the end, you've got to do the work. And if you think, particularly in psychiatry, that you're here for a bit of a dos uh, and that you can wing it and that it's all going to be fine and smiley when it comes to the exam day, you are seriously mistaken. So I, I think there is something about, you know, God, God, uh, um, what, what, what does Paul, um, whatsoever a man sows, that will he reap, says Paul. And that operates at, at a number of levels in that. Get that early on in your career, that if, if you doss around, don't expect the outcomes to all slot into place. Most people, the vast, vast majority of people, there are one or two lucky people who can wait, who can slide through. The vast 99.9% .9 of us aren't in that. And if you want it, you've got to work for it. And if you're at university and you want to get a good degree at the end, that'll give open up possibilities broaden possibilities for your future you've got to be willing to work and work is always you know because of the fall the pleasure the beauty of work that god created at the beginning has become entangled with thorns and thistles so it's always going to be hard work there are going to be some real effort involved but i think rule number one is get that clear there are no free lunches if you want it work for it you know, and that's the smiling death saying that. Right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, 
I, I think the, I think another tip, though, if I were thinking, would would be, and and this should be something easy to remember: take back control. Now, what do I mean by that? That what I mean is we're all living in a in an ecology, an an environment, a secular world, in which there's a competition for our attention. You you could say that attention is one of the most precious commodities in the world, in the consumer world. If if they haven't got your attention, they're not going to be able to sell. And it's all about, as you know, on Facebook, Twitter, it's all about these platforms are there to get your attention in order to sell you stuff and advertise stuff to you. So, um, and, and, and they have perfected ways of getting your attention. Um, that, you know, obviously one of the ways is distraction. So you're reading something and you get your pop-ups and moving images at the side, very distracting. Um, they also know how to give you little packages of dopamine to reward you. And so the images they present with you are attractive images. They also know how to make you frightened or anxious or discontent with things that you haven't got that. Or if you don't get that, life isn't going to work out so well. They'll use all of these tricks. They swirl around us because there's a fight on to get your attention. I, I always think that the, the perfect example of this is the airport gauntlet, as I call it. And you know you go through security, pick up your stuff, and then you have to snake. They've perfected <laughs> this at uh, Gatwick and, and, and uh, one or two others, but you, Bristol University, you snake through this, like, this passageway where you were bombarded with images of cool people. Of, and all you need to do is buy that T-shirt, it seems, and you'll have a body like that. It's amazing. I always just say to look, if I get that T-shirt, will, that, will I look like <laughs> <I get> that? <laughs> and, uh, and, and so all these images, and people with little whiskey things give you a taste, and music, and attractive, highly made-up people with, with, with their perfume things. And it's like running the gauntlet, isn't it? And then you break out in, into the reception area, the waiting area. And similarly, it's a cacophony of signs and signposts and opportunities, all fighting for your attention. Now, there is one place in that airport where that isn't happening, where it's all quiet and nobody's talking very much and it's very peaceful and people can get on with their work. Do you know where it is? It's up in the business lounge. If you pay £25 or if you've got, you know, uh, if you're flying business class, you can sit up there. And all those people who have set, who've separated themselves from everybody else in order to attend to what they think they do. Do you know what they're doing up there? They're working on new ways to get your attention downstairs. <laughs> That's what they do. But they're not as stupid as we are. They understand that to think up good ways to get your attention, they need to focus. Okay. So I think the big message is right at the beginning of your studies, you covenant with yourself. I'm going to take back control. And that means I'm going to be more intentional about who I lend my attention to all the time and how susceptible. You'll be fighting this battle to the end of you. I'm still fighting it. You know, Twitter uh, draws me in um, at the stories, the, the things there. You know, I, I feel physically drawn to my phone at times. And I know all 
many of the folk do who are listening. And that is a battle, and start fighting it now, folks, because if you want to focus on your studies, you've got to beat off some of the other people. So that means setting boundaries around your studies and having allocated times. This is going to be work time. Don't be too ambitious. You know, don't make it a three-hour block if you're a one-hour person. And we all are slightly different in the way we do things. I, I always envied my wife when I was at uh, the, the girl who became my wife when I was at university, Louise, uh, because she could sit down for hours, four hours, and just study away, whereas after four minutes, <laughs> my, I, I was, so I, I, I'm afraid her, her results went downhill after she met me because I, <laughs> I'd turn up and get coffee. But take that control, you know, can't set boundaries around your work. Um, and, and I guess the other thing is the obvious thing is, is also good habits around sleep, alcohol, relationships, but that's a whole other area as well. And finally, put first things first, get Jesus right, get that foundation right, and then you've got a, a friend for life who wants you to work well and work hard and to achieve good and beautiful and interesting things. Uh, as part of his the kingdom that he made as you work with him in putting it back together again yeah wonderful thank you and then as a kind of um older wiser christian brother in our church what would you love the students um at all souls to know as as a an older i'm not sure about the wiser bit but certainly as an older i I, i think i think one of the things is this is an older guy, so you're in it for the long haul, guys. I, I, it, what I mean by that is the things you're battling with at the beginning of your studies, you, you'll find that you'll be battling with them through much of your life. That They wax and they wane, but the kind of foibles of character, you know, the, 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 the areas where we have to push ourselves extra harder, we do make progress, but often it, it's a lifelong battle. And I, I remember listening to a speaker who was age 70. And, uh, he, and I was the, the, at the time introducing him as the um, president of the CU. And, and I introduced him. And then halfway through his Bible talk, he said, I want to say to you now, he was, he was one of the world's greatest theologians at the time. Um, well, I thought so. I was a great admirer of his. And he said, I just want to share something with you. As I look at you all now, age 19, 20, at the you know, beginning of so many things, he said, the things I battle with now, many of them are the same things I was battling with when I was sitting there. And I remember sitting there thinking, that's a bit of a gloomy kind of prospect. <laughs> and then last year, I was talking to a CU, and it was funnily enough, I found myself saying, and I just want to share with you, <laughs> I was sitting where you were sitting, what seems like two minutes ago. And I blinked and I opened my eyes, and now I'm up here now. It's amazing how that time flashes by. And uh, be, be up for the struggle of the Christian life. It is a fight. That's why it's presented as a fight in the New Testament. But, but, but also know that, that God will walk with you right through that. And don't, don't think you're, you know, believe me, it will go faster than you think, so make good use of the time. Glenn, it's been such a treat to chat to you. Thank you so much for sharing your time and uh, your wisdom on those areas of um, how to see our studies as kingdom work and identity work, how to approach them with uh, humility and with curiosity and with discipline um, and to um, live for the, the glory of Christ in all that we do. 
Um, thank you so much for sharing with us and uh, we look forward to seeing you around on Sunday. Oh, well, thank you. Well, it's been great to be with you and I, I do hope I have the opportunity if any students come and say hi, I'd love to say hi, but the trouble is I'll be wearing a mask. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll find a way of making it work. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you. Thank you.